You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we're grateful for the blessings that you bring every day, especially the one we get to be in our new facility. Thank you so much for that, Father. What a delight that you have bestowed upon us. And so, Lord, this morning as we gather and we look into your word, there is so much there, so much that we will never see, but so much that we can see. Let us see what you would have for us this morning by the grace of your Holy Spirit through your word. And we'll ask that you apply it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's start by reading. Um, we finished chapter 1. So let's go ahead and start by reading 2 Corinthians. <laughs> you thought I was going to say 1 Corinthians again. Chapter 2. Let's read the whole chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Remember last week, I'm going to go ahead and finish up with the last couple of verses of 1 because this is actually a continuation of the thought that finished up in chapter 1. But I call God, in verse 23, but I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth, not that we lorded over you your faith, but are workers with you for your joy, for in your faith we are standing firm. But I determined this, verse 1 of chapter 2, for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? And this is the very thing I wrote you, lest when I came I should have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him, lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. But whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes." in the presence of Christ, in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in his triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. So this morning, I'm going to probably use some analogies and metaphors, and I'm not the greatest at that. So if I see blank looks, I'll do what I can to make the analogy say what it's supposed to say. And as I was thinking about some of these things this week, 
I'm praying about how to present this. There, you know, you can say the single most important thing in the Christian life is, and <laughs> fill in the list. There's lots of single most important things. But I would say this. As oil is to the smooth running of an engine, so forgiveness is to Christianity, is to the body life of the church and the body life of anybody in our acquaintance. And we're going to look at, to some degree, we're going to look at forgiveness this morning. Now, my computer apparently died, so the one morning that it would have been really handy to actually have an overhead, <laughs> we don't have one. So I'm going to do my best to... Um, visualize this for you or make it visual because it's kind of confusing as you read through Paul's epistles. You know, it would have been really handy if Job started the Bible because I think that was the first one written. And then after that, it was in chron. I, I'm just, that's my OCD. And so the New Testament really shouldn't have started. Or, well, it could have started with the Gospels, but the epistles would have been nice if they were in a different order, but they weren't. So that's fine. Um, chapter 2 we're going to get a little bit of a picture of where Paul went, how he went, and why, in some cases, why he went, so we can get a, a view of what the Corinthians were upset about, that when he told them he was going to visit them, and then he didn't. So last week, we finished up with um, the fact that nobody, nobody can lord it over your faith. No preacher, no elder, no super apostle, which there are none anymore today, but let's pretend for... Well, we're not even going to pretend. There just aren't any. Nobody has authority over your faith. And Paul was making sure that the Corinthians understood that. And then it was... That statement was part and parcel of the sorrow that he had caused them with apparently a letter he wrote that the scholars call the severe letter. So now I'm going to kind of go through a chronology here. He made the decision in verse 1. It says, but I determined this for my own sake that I would not come to you again in, to, to you in sorrow again. So Paul made the decision not to come to them a third time until they had dealt with some of the issues in the church. He knew it would bring them grief and that it would bring him grief and it would be a tremendously difficult visit were he to do that. So he wrote this letter instead. There was apparently a painful visit that he did not want to repeat. <laughs> the chronology most likely looks like this, and this is where it would have been handy to have an overhead. But I'm gonna, So there was the first visit in 50 to 52 A.D., uh, 50 A.D., during the last phase of his second missionary journey, Paul started churches in Macedonia, in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. That's in Acts chapter 16 and 17. First visit, 50 A.D. Then there is a letter referred to as the previous letter. From Paul, it's no longer extant. If God wanted us to have it, we would have it. Paul, who is now in Ephesus, in 52 to 55, wrote to Corinth, rebuking vice and fornication by church members. That's spoken of in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. This letter is referred to in some cases as Corinthians A. 1 Corinthians A. Or Corinthians A. Then there, after the previous letter, there is a report to Paul. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he said, Chloe's people have come to me. They reported to Paul about the party spirit that was still going on, about quarrels that were going on, and the difficulties that were happening in Corinth after the founding of the church. Remember, Paul taught there for 18 months. Imagine having Paul in front of you for 18 months. Would you learn much? You would just have to choose not to learn. I'm not going to listen to this guy. And I'm, I'm thinking there were some in the, in the body that were like that. So, first visit, previous letter, Chloe's people's report to Paul. Then a letter 
Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, Achaicus probably brought Paul a letter that reports on the problems in Corinth with specific questions about marriage, about divorce, about food sacrifice to idols, about spiritual gifts, and the collection he was organizing for the Jerusalem believers. And that's referred to in 1 Corinthians 16. But in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, now, in regard to marriage, and he all from 7 to the end of the first book of 1 Corinthians, Paul continually says, now about this, now about that. And these are the things that were in that likely letter that Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus brought to him. <laughs> then... Timothy was dispatched. He was dispatched to Corinth to deal with some of the problems. And that's talked about in 1 Corinthians 1, 4 and 1 Corinthians 16. Then he wrote 1 Corinthians, which we studied for two years. In the spring of 55, probably, Paul writes during his final year at Ephesus, the letter we know as 1 Corinthians concerning problems reported to him. Perhaps this letter was carried to Corinth by Stephanus. We don't know who, but this is sometimes called Corinthians B. At this point, Paul is planning a soon visit to Macedonia with a stop in Corinth, and that's in 1 Corinthians 4, 18 through 21. The second visit that we see referring to, being referred to after the 1 Corinthians letter, he also calls it the painful visit. The painful visit is a quick trip to deal with troubles in Corinth that were serious enough to require direct personal confrontation, 2 Corinthians 2, 1 and 13, 2. During this visit, Paul was personally attacked by one of the members, 2 Corinthians 2.5 and 7.12. This visit was difficult for both Paul and for the converts in Corinth. Imagine a beloved teacher comes back to visit you and some in the church viciously attack him. We never see that in modern Christianity, fortunately, because we all get along, right? Isn't that wonderful? I shouldn't be flippant about that. It's painful when that kind of thing happens. And so there would have been some in the church who would have been just agonizing over Paul and some who were really sorry to see him there, who were angry at him. That's the second visit. Then the tearful letter or the severe letter from 2 Corinthians 2, 3, and 4. Paul, it's, it's no longer extant either. It's, it's written from Ephesus, probably carried by Titus in lieu of Paul going himself. In it, Paul apparently professed his love for the Corinthians and required them to discipline the man who had led in defying his apostolic authority on his second visit. This is some or it could have been a continuation of the discussion of the man who had been living in, in uh, perfidy, uh, in incest, talked about in 1 Corinthians 5. This is sometimes referred to as Corinthians C. Apparently, this letter was quite effective in producing repentance, and we see that, we'll see that in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians. Then he has some proposed visits which don't come to pass, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 8, due to intervening circumstances. And as severe danger in Asia, remember he talked about being nearly deprived of life, uh, and his near despair in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10, as well as his desire not to make another painful visit. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. That's our first verse here. Then he travels now we're moving past this, but then he travels to Troas in Macedonia amidst various afflictions, but he meets Titus there and is encouraged by his good report about the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, which we'll get to this millennium. Then the super apostles, the NAR of their day, challenge Paul's authority, apparently Jewish Christians from Judea, perhaps seeking to impose the authority of the mother church over the Gentile churches, 
the um, superlative apostles that it talks about in 2 Corinthians 11.5 and 12.11. They seem to bring another fake take on the gospel. Then he writes 2 Corinthians. About 56 AD, Paul sends our 2 Corinthians letter from Macedonia, which is sometimes called 2 Corinthians D. Excuse me, Corinthians D. Then a third visit occurs about 57 AD when Paul gathers with those who are preparing to send the gift collected to, re to relieve the Jerusalem saints, spoken of in Acts chapter 19, 21 and 22. Apparently matters have been resolved to some extent since from Corinth, Paul wrote to the Roman church. He wrote from Corinth to the Roman church. And, Mas and he says in Romans 15, Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to share their resources with the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. So he's delivering that gift that he's been working on, that, that monetary gift to the struggling Christians in Jerusalem. So now, he, um, he stays in Corinth three months, then he escapes to Macedonia to avoid a Jewish plot. He meets his companions in Troas, Acts 20, and he leaves for Jerusalem where he is arrested. After that, we don't hear anything more about the Corinthian church until about 95 AD when Clement of Rome writes one Clement to address a new disharmony in Corinth. Go figure. But, uh, and that's not scripture, but it is interesting. It's, I've got the Acts. I've got the, uh, works of the apostolic fathers and it's they're clearly not scripture but they still have a lot of interesting information good historical information so now with that and I, if i get the computer working next week i'll stick it up there maybe i can email it to anybody that wants but it's a timeline so you can kind of see how how it started with in 50 a.d with the founding of the church clear till paul is in his third visit to corinth and then escapes to macedonia so now Imagine the angst of the apostle. He has founded this church. He spent 18 months there He established in establishing it. He writes a letter to the church, and we can speculate that it is most likely just a letter of greeting and teaching. We don't have this letter. That's the, the first one. So there's no way to know. Some of Chloe's people report to Paul about some real difficulties in the church there, and he likes a, then he receives a letter de delivered by Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus with with de detailed questions and concerns. Clearly, this letter communicates to Paul that there are still serious problems at Corinth. He then makes a second visit, which ends in difficulty and is referred to, as I said, as the painful visit. He writes another letter referred to as the tearful letter, which has the good effect in producing repentance in the Corinthian church. His proposed visits that he mentions there don't come to pass, and so through great affliction, he travels to Troas and Macedonia. His authority is challenged by pompous and foolish people claiming to be something they're not. And so he writes the letter we're studying, 2 Corinthians. Later he visits him a third time, and then we don't hear about Corinth again, as I said, until the non-scriptural letter from Clement in 95 AD. Paul's decision not to visit, as mentioned in this verse, arose out of his great love for them and his desire not to further create any conflict in Corinth. So I want us to have that kind of playing in the back of our minds as we look at 2 Corinthians. His, this planned visit that didn't come to pass, he purposefully didn't do it. Part of the reason he didn't do it was because he knew it would bring pain and, and difficulty. And that's why he wrote 2 Corinthians. Sometimes a physical visit can bring more difficulty than it can resolve. And paving the way, if you will, with a letter can have great effect. Now, Paul's going to talk about forgiveness and if there's one thing that's harder to do than forgive someone, I don't know what it is in our lives. But forgiveness can be 
a well easily done thing or it can be so difficult that to the human mind it seems impossible. And apparently there were some in Corinth who there had been a majority vote to impose a, a punishment on the particular person that Paul is talking about. And the person had offended Paul. And it was Paul who comes back and says, okay, that's enough. Sufficient is the punishment. And we're going to see that. It's an excellent, excellent example to us when we've been offended. So then Paul says in verse 2, and then I'll ask if there are any questions, especially about the chronology. For if I cause you sorrow, after he says, I wouldn't come to you again in sorrow. He says, if I cause you sorrow, then who makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrow? When you cause someone sorrow whom you love, doesn't it also cause sorrow in you? I mean, you don't go, <laughs> they made their bed. Now they can sleep into the idiots. More often than not, at least in the Christian life, when we cause someone whom we love sorrow, it doesn't bring us any joy or gladness. Especially if we've done it and we, it, because of sin. But even if we've done it appropriately, confronting them from, for something that they shouldn't be doing, it still doesn't bring it brings pain to the causer and to the receiver. Paul's only purpose in causing sorrow, which would cause him sorrow, would be to provoke repentance. It's the only reason he would do it. The only reason he would bring sorrow into their lives was for their own good. You've heard that. This is for your own good. Well, then don't do it because I don't want any good in my life. Sometimes we think that way. The only reason he would bring sorrow, which would be to cause sorrow, which would be to provoke repentance, which would then make him glad. It was the godly sorrow that he looked to create, not the worldly sorrow. His intention in this letter was to bring encouragement, comfort, and confrontation to those at Corinth so that they would continue on this path of repentance that they had been traveling. He's seeing growth. He's seeing change. And he's excited about it. But there are still problems, especially when we get to chapter 11, we see the superlative apostles. Any questions or comments about the first two verses? About that extended timeline? Okay. Verse 3. This is the very thing I wrote to you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. Paul's decision to wait and let the Holy Spirit work on the church and his previous command to put away an incestuous member of the church were both evidences that he was more concerned about church purity and church holiness and the truth than he was about supposed church unity. When we let supposed unity get in the way of proper church discipline, we've not taken the long-term look long-term view. We have decided that getting along is better than the truth. I'm sorry, but getting along is never better than the truth. Now, there are ways to do what needs to be done, and they must be accompanied and bathed in prayer and humility. And I believe that is what Paul did. He wants to make them rejoice. And the only way to truly rejoice is to deal with difficulties that are in our lives, sin that is in our lives, and put it away. So, he, was, he knew that upon their submission to the Holy Spirit and obedience to the commands of Scripture and to His commands, which were inspired by the Holy Spirit Himself, then they would have proper joy. The joy that comes from being renewed, from obedience, from following the Lord, from dealing with sin in, someone's, in one's life. 
and getting it out of the way. Their joy would be the result of obedience to God and subsequent blessing. The blessing, of course, was not to be assumed as a monetary or emotional blessing, but rather the blessing that comes from God's sanction or blessing of obedient believers. Paul says that, he says that his joy, which would result from their obedience, would be the joy of the whole church. Any church that's had an opportunity, that's, that's kind of a, an, an, uh, an impotent word to describe what happens when you have to discipline someone, but a church that's had to discipline someone, seen repentance, and had that person restored to fellowship, that's a joy beyond what you can imagine sometimes, isn't it? Um, and I think that's happened. I know it's, I've been involved in some of the, one of those at least. And it's, it's, it's a wondrous thing to see somebody respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit to deal with sin, to actually deal with it, and then those relationships begin to be mended. Now we know it's long-term. It doesn't happen overnight. But still, when you, begin, when you see the beginnings of that, it brings a joy. And that's what Paul's talking about. He balanced the need to, to avoid improper and unnecessary confrontation coming again, present there, causing that super apostle to, to blab again, possibly, with the need to call out bad behavior and then wait for the Holy Spirit to move. Do we trust the Holy Spirit? I mean, is he really at work? Absolutely. I have a, a close... Well, I, I've talked to you about my boss who reminds me often that long before I was around, the Holy Spirit was doing fine. He really is doing fine. And that's an understatement. The Holy Spirit has ways of working the Word of God into and under our fingernails, if you will, to elicit proper responses that we don't have and never will have and really shouldn't want. The Father of Lights... His gifts, and one of his gifts is repentance, brings only good gifts. And so Paul balanced this need for confrontation. He, con he confronted them enough. He sends a letter, and he calls upon them to obey the Holy Spirit. And they do. They begin to. And it's an exciting thing. And so he's going to talk about that. Any comments about verse 3? Verse 4. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. This is the, the other letter. Uh, so that, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. <laughs> I have had to write a letter to someone. Uh, hopefully it was in love. I intended in love. It was in love. About some relational issues that were happening. And I found myself rewriting things and taking things out and asking my wife and, and praying over it and anguishing over it. And uh, I, I picture this even more so because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul doing this. Um, when a loving parent has to confront a badly wayward child, it is never with glee and delight. Parents who love them, their children and want them to turn out loving the Lord and serving others are, are pained deeply when the child, no matter how old, turns from the path. Sometimes when they have to confront them, it is done after much prayer and weeping. The agony of watching one's child doing things that are in, that are unbiblical never goes away. It never goes away. You never stop being a parent just because you get older and your kids move out of the house, do you? But you know, some, the funny thing is, you don't really want to either. When you have a good relationship with your kids, you want it to keep up. You want it to keep up. In the same way, those who were, who were put in responsibility 
over a small part of the flock of God, if they are true shepherds, will agonize over any bad behavior and conflict that might arise among the believers that they are responsible for. And so, for example, if, if, if it came to us, the four elders here of, of bad behavior, it would, it would not be a cause for joy or a cause for excitement. Well, which would, who gets to confront this one? <laughs> no, it would be, oh my. And prayer would happen. Knees would be applied. Begging God would be, uh, would be one of the things. And then a decision to follow scripture. Matthew chapter 5, Galatians chapter 6, Luke chapter 4, 14. Anyway, it becomes the agonizing decision to confront. And so that's what Paul had to do. Paul wrote, as one commentator said, not with ink, but with tears when he wrote the Corinthians, both the severe letter and this letter as well as the first letter. He never intended to make them sorrowful, but he would not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God that would have such a positive and long-term blessed impact on their lives. This word will never return void. And as we read it and study it and apply it faithfully and by the grace of God, it will have good effect, blessed effect. But sometimes, for the blessing to come, the difficulty must occur first. And so, when you have surgery, they got to cut you open. Good thing they use anesthetic nowadays. It's really difficult to stay still when people are breaking your ribs on purpose because they love you. Yeah. They didn't break mine, they spread them. I, the, the doctor that did the surgery on me, I was 16. I was really little when I was 16. He had hands the size of the, the hulks. And I remember thinking, how's he going to get those in there? But then I didn't have to worry about it. They told me to count back from 100. I got to 98. So... Paul never intended to make them sorrowful, I said, but he wouldn't shrink back from declaring. He wrote out of love, and he praised out of love, and he confronted out of love. He took no pleasure in their sorrow, and he took no pleasure in the pain that he caused them when he, when he denounced their bad behavior. His love for the Corinthians was real, and just as love can be evidenced in kindness and consideration, it can also be evidenced in the willingness to make the hard calls that will hopefully result in a sinner repenting and turning back to the Lord, or returning to the Lord in the first place. This was a situation Paul was in, and he took it willingly, but I would say not delightedly, never delightedly. Out of much affliction and anguish of heart, he says, he wrote the letter with many tears. This kind of love and rebuke is something that God himself does. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, he says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore... Be zealous and repent. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, and you have forgotten, and, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For whom the Lord loves, he discipline, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Who gets away from the Lord scourging in that respect as a son? Only those who aren't his sons. Those of us who are his children must expect his discipline, unless you're perfect, and then you don't have to worry about it. I don't think that's going to happen. The attitude of the one bringing the rebuke is incredibly important, however. He must be seen as doing what he must do because of love. Now, at the time that it is happening, this reproving and rebuking of a sinner, 
It may not be terribly obvious, but if the rebuker is truly doing it out of love, it increases the possibility of repentance and possibly shortens the time for repentance. Charles Hodge put it this way. He said, when the offender is made to feel that while his sin is punished, he himself is loved and that the end aimed at is not his suffering, but his good, he is the more likely to be brought to repentance. Every pastor must see in the apostle's love for the Corinthians and in the extreme sorrow which he exercised discipline, in the case of offenders, an instructive example for his own imitation. Those who are responsible over shepherding over the lives of others must see this kind of example as an imitation they should follow. Lovingly, carefully, prayerfully, kindly, and slowly. Any comments about verse 4? Yes. Revelation 3.19 and Hebrews 12.5 and 6. Yes, sir. Well, if you are, if you do lack empathy, then the first thing to do is to spend some time on your knees and find out why you're lacking the empathy, lacking the understanding. Um, sometimes, and I, I, anybody who wants to help me out here can correct me if you think I'm, I'm missing it. Sometimes maybe pure empathy isn't necessary. An understanding that something is sin, an understanding that sin needs to be rebuked, and an understanding that it needs to be rebuked in a careful and loving way, even I think a non-empath, if you will, can do that. If Scripture commands, and Scripture does command. But if you look at Galatians chapter 6, 1, it says, You who which are spiritual, restore such a one, taking care lest you also be caught. Now, I didn't. That was a paraphrase. Please look the scripture up. So the first thing to recognize is there but for the grace of God, go I. And really believe that. You know, we can say stuff. You know, we got, got cleanliness is next to godliness. Proverbs chapter 37. Well, why are you laughing? My Bible has 37 chapters. No, I guess it doesn't. But to actually believe it and recognize that really, really, really there, but for the grace of God, go I, and probably have gone there, that can, that can I won't say substitute for empathy, but it can give you a, a pause that I think is important to recognize. I better be careful here. I better be sure. And, and unless it's a life-threatening thing, some of, these, some of these things that are done on the spur of the moment, I think would have just been done very much better if the person stepped back got on their knees, got some counsel, get some counsel about how to take care of the situation. That's in a, a, a multitude of counselors, there is safety. There can be safety. And uh, take your time, unless, again, if it's life-threatening, that's different. If a child's being abused or something, that's different. But most of the time, that's not what's going on. And sometimes, I think, at least in my life, it's been I wanted to deal with it quickly because it was, it was a pain for me. I had places to go, people to see, contracts to sign, and this was slowing me up. Fix it. Or I'm going to fix it for you. And that is never an attitude to have. Even a portion of that is never an attitude to have. So yes, empathy is good. That was a, I should be a politician. Actually, I was. Empathy is good, but a recognition of our own weaknesses is a good start on that. A good start on that. <laughs> now, here's where Paul starts to, this is an amazing thing. That the guy who was most offended is pulling the others back. Okay, it's enough. Don't kill him. You know, 
Verse 5, he says, But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. How often do we say too much? How often does that proverb my wife used to remind me of and still does, in much speaking there wanteth not sin. And I'm the guy who's known as never using a sentence when a paragraph will do. You know, I don't have the address mentioned. And it's King James. I memorized it in King James like decades ago. But it's, it's, it's not in chapter 37. I know that. So if you look up, in much speaking there wanteth not sin, it'll get you right there. And with the modern phones, somebody's probably already got it. I'll bet you. So this verse, verse 5, is referring either to the incestuous son in 1 Corinthians 5 or to some other offender who had been exceptionally rude to Paul. Or it could have been that the incestuous offender was also the one who was rude. We don't really know. That is not... The Holy Spirit would have made that evident if it was necessary. The principle is what's necessary. Or it could... uh, At any event, Paul dismisses personal sorrow, but he does acknowledge that the offender's actions caused sorrow to the church at large. Any church who is truly following Scripture in an obedient manner, has decent, loving preaching. And we have good preaching. Every Sunday. Right there. Boom. And has that advantage. Is going to feel sorrow when one of their members is feeling sorrow or has done something they shouldn't do. They're not going to be excited about it. They're not going to be happy about it. And that's a great start to begin the process of discipline. But at any rate, He is probably understanding the Corinthian tendency towards extremes, and he's cautioning them in this. And the next verses, in this and the next verses, not to overreact. Paul did not take the issue personally, which made him much more able to objectively deal with it. When we take stuff personally, and I see it all the time, even if it's not meant for you, I want to take that personally. Would you put my name in there so I can really take it personally? Then I can really be mad at you. We take stuff personally all the time. He didn't take the issue personally, which made him, I said, much more able to objectively deal with it. Note also that he does not name names. It's one thing to name names of those who are violently ruining the church of God. They are preaching false doctrine. They are heretics. They are a false gospel. That's one thing. And they are named. Paul names Demas and Alexander and Hymenaeus, and he calls them out. But when it comes to writing a letter... Might I say, speaking in front of people, might I say a blog or whatever, and you're dealing with the restoration of of a church member, Paul doesn't name him. Note that. Don't name those whom we love and we are working, we are moving, helping to move towards repentance. (coughs) It is one thing to call out false teachers. It is another to protect the identity of those within within the body who are sinning or who have sinned and in this case, in this case, are repentant. This person had repented. And so Paul doesn't say his name. He doesn't want to say too much. And this would be an encouragement to the Corinthians not to say too much as well. Restoration is in order here, he says, without further ado. What's that restoration going to look like? Any comments about verse 5? Don't say too much. Don't name names in res- when restoring a repentant sinner. Verse 6 Sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority. Now, the word punishment is epitemia. And it's a word that the Greek, in the Greek, which means to turn a situation in the right direction. 
to steer something back onto its proper course. Isn't that a perfect word for what this kind of punishment would have been? It wasn't to exact tribute. It wasn't to embarrass. It wasn't to parade evil. It was simply to turn them back into the right way. That's what this punishment, that's what the word means. It's used only here in the New Testament. Its use in classical Greek indicates that this was an official disciplinary act by a majority of a group. Its purpose was restoration, period. That's what the purpose was. So when these Corinthians had had a majority decision to subject this person to church discipline and punishment, the discussion would have been about how will this restore them? How will this make them whole again? How will this bring them back into the body? What can we do that will call them out, that will make them face their sin, that will cause them to be open to the Holy Spirit as much as we can and bring them back to Christ? Church discipline is necessary, but it must be carried out carefully and follow precise scriptural demands. Biblical discipline stays within bounds and does not underestimate the severity of an offense, nor does it overly punish for an offense. To me, that implies a take-your-time kind of situation. Because in a, in a body of Christ that is, for the most part, primarily dedicated to following Christ, this is probably not going to happen very much. So you're not going to, gladly, you're not going to have a whole bunch of precedent to look back. Well, this is how we did it the last 23 times. That's not happening. So they're going to, and that's good. That means we have to resort to Scripture every time. Every time. And indeed, this particular case that they're talking about is a pretty horrendous sin, essentially legal incest. And Paul is cautioning the Corinthian church not to go overboard in their zeal to carry out church discipline, but rather to acknowledge that the discipline has had its intended effect and the offender has turned back to Christ. Sometimes those that are closest to the situation may not see that. It may take somebody who's not enmeshed in the family or in the actual offense itself to be able to stand back and see that the person's, the person, hey, hey, he's, he's changed his mind. He doesn't, he hates himself now. Let's not hate him with himself. Let's love him back into the body. And that's what Paul's going to say here. <laughs> and I, I talk too much. I don't have enough time to get through this. Next week, we're going to talk about forgiveness. And what was going on here is Paul is setting the stage in verses 1 through 6, and we break the books up into verses, but in this part of the letter, he's setting the stage about what discipline is, some of the principles to follow, and how to carefully do it so that you can forgive the one who offended you. This wasn't done in a vacuum. This man, if he's talking about the incestuous one who was living with his mother-in-law, it would have been at least an embarrassment for the whole church. Sometimes it's best if you can. I'm not very good at hypotheticals like this, but sometimes a lot of folks are. It's best to picture what you would feel like if this was happening in your family. How would you respond? How would you hurt? How would you agonize over it? And so Paul is going to call on the Corinthians now. A majority of them pushed for this punishment. And it was a good punishment. It had its intended effect. It was the godly kind that brought sorrow, brought repentance. What's next after repentance? Stick it to them again. Make them realize how bad they hurt us. Parade them in front of the world with a knife stuck in their ribs. No. Get on your knees and thank God it wasn't you. And forgive them. And I mean, we're going to find out what forgiveness means. 
biblical forgiveness means. And it doesn't just mean, well, okay, I'll like you again someday. It means that it's, it, it implies restoration. Restoration to the body. Restoration of relationships. They've already been restored to the Lord. They've already been restored to the Lord. And Paul's going to actually say, essentially say, are you any better than God? So next week we're going to talk about forgiveness. And if you want to see, <laughs> if you want to read chapters 2, um, verses 07 through 13, there'll be other stuff in there because Paul rambles off, rambles the wrong word, the Holy Spirit directed him. He covers a lot of ground in this letter. In between, just like I did this morning. Except that I'm not inspired. Boy, am I not inspired. He covers a lot of ground, but in between, and in between, but, and he'll come back to chapter 2, verse 5, later on in chapter 2. He'll come back to it again. He's going to diverge a little bit after this, after a couple of verses. But the point is sin, confrontation, restoration, forgiveness. If I was to list the four, the four principles of dealing with sin. The sin is discovered, the sin is confronted, the sin is repented of, and the person, the offender, is forgiven. Forgiveness is a difficult thing. And uh, so next week, uh, just, just finish up chapter 2 and you'll be ready. Let's pray. Lord, there isn't a single person on the face of this planet that has ever lived in the last 6,000 years that discovered that deserved your forgiveness other than, well, the Lord Jesus didn't need your forgiveness. He is the God who forgave. But other than that, none of us ever could ever attain unto one millimeter of the forgiveness needed to escape hell. And yet you have seen it. You have seen to it that those in your church, the elect, you have chosen and you have sovereignly forgiven them. We stand and sit and kneel in awe of it every day. We know that truly, but for the grace of God, there go we. We know that truly, but for the word of God, we would have never seen it. Thank you for this, Lord. Thank you for your choice of us. We ask that we would always be those who would confront our own sin, repent of it, seek forgiveness, and be restored. Help us to do that as a body with one another. And help us to do that in our own families with one another. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.